Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not hidden yourself from us, but have spoken who you are most fully in your Son and in these scriptures which give us a glimpse into who he is. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, unstop our ears? Allow us to receive, even if that's scary, so that we might know you and your goodness better going from this place than we did coming in. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Maybe seated. Well, a few people have uh, noticed and commented that I haven't been up here in a while. I actually haven't preached a sermon in six weeks. That's the longest I've ever gone in, in, in my entire time here at IAC. Now, we have a team leadership philosophy here at IAC in every dimension of the church, and that includes preaching. And so it's been such a gift to receive from so many different voices in the pulpit proclaiming the gospel, the good news of who God is and what he's done for us each week. But we've pressed into that team philosophy more than usual over the last six weeks because of some things happening uh, at home for me. Uh, my wife, Sarah, is in the hardest stretch of her three-year journey of nursing school this fall. Uh, this six-week season, she's had almost 60 hours a week between clinicals and classes and studying. So, so I've been needed at home in some different ways and at different times of day, like times of day that I would usually write um, than usual. <laughs> And it's truly been a joy. I am so proud of Sarah and the way she's following Jesus into this. There's, there's definitely a sense of call in this for all of us. I'm so thankful to be able to champion her in this and care for my kids in a different way. It's truly been a joy. But I'm also thankful to be coming back to the pulpit for these next several weeks. The preaching team is thankful too. Because back when we were planning this series through Ephesians, they looked at Ephesians 5 and 6 and saw that submission and authority, and marriage, and parenting, and slavery, and spiritual warfare were on the agenda, and they were like, no. <laughs> now, truthfully, I would trust anyone who preaches here at IC to lead us into these things, but I do relish the chance to lead us into good news in the places that we might be scared or nervous to go. And this passage can definitely be one of those places. I suspect that when you heard the New Testament reading. It felt a little bit difficult to say, thanks be to God. <laughs> There's some hard stuff here. That's why we're not just going to spend one week on this section from Ephesians 5.21 to 6.9. It's often called the household code. Um, we're going to spend two weeks on it. These are Paul's instructions for how the gospel was transforming the relationships within a first century Roman extended family which included servants and, and multiple nuclear families in one household, kind of different from the way we do it. And the way I've often seen this section studied or preached is to go into each section, right? First, you take the wives and husbands, then the children and the parents, then the slaves and masters, and you point out applications for each one in the modern world. And, that, and that's a uh, fine, good way to do it because there's a lot to wade through here, some cultural differences, some things that persist in the midst of it, uh, and it can feel pretty complex. But underneath all that complexity, there's actually a deep simplicity to this section. What ties the whole thing together, the main point that Paul is actually trying to make, comes in the last verse before the household code and introduces it. Okay? Let's listen again to verse five, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, the first verse that Erica read. 
submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I know that for many of us, like we hear the word submit and we have no idea what comes after that. (laughs) And for good reason. The word and the concept have been so abused that it's hard to hear what's actually being said by the text and not what others have used the text to say. When the scriptures speak about submission, here's the basic idea in, in, in rough language. Submission is a freely chosen following of another. It's not quite the same as obedience. Obedience would be a more focused, like intensive example of submission, a giving over of your will to another. And obedience, whatever they want, is what you commit to do. But submission is a broader and more flexible idea than that. Submission is a freely chosen following. A conscious decision using your agency to respond to another in a posture of learning and listening and respecting and incorporating their leadership into our lives. Now, as we say that, our mind still immediately jumps to those relational structures of submission that are laid out by Paul in this passage, right? Categories, wives, children, slaves that we heard read. But I want to hold back on that for another moment because if we go there too quickly, we're going to miss the main point that Paul is making that undergirds everything else. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, as Christians, we believe that Christ is our king and we are first called to submit and and honestly to be obedient to him. If we're looking for a religion where we get to be in charge, this is not the one. There are others Submit, though, to one another out of reverence for Christ adds a different dimension here. All of us are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul is calling every person in the body to submit to every other person in the body. What's actually foundational in this passage is not those structures of submission, but a universal posture of submission. Now, this means, if you're kind of tracking with this, that if everybody's following, everybody also has to be leading at the same time. We're going to talk more about that side of it next week. Next week is the leadership pieces. This week is the submission pieces. So for today, where I want to start is asking this question of, okay, submit to one another. What does that mutual submission actually mean? What would it look like? It means that in the body of Christ... Everybody follows. It means our first identity is as followers, followers of Christ, absolutely, but also followers of one another. It means that if we are not willing to be led by anyone at any time, we will end up outside the purposes of God for our life. I don't think that's too strongly stated. Because Christ leads us through the leadership of others within the body of Christ. Not just the set-apart leaders, but everybody. Now, why is it set up this way? I think there are a couple different reasons. The first is that we are followers of Christ, seeking to become more and more like Christ because we believe the abundance of life is found in Christ. And Christ lived a life of utter submission to his Father. I can only do what I see my father doing, he said in the gospel text, right? 
as humans, we are dependent, created beings. And when the Son of God took on our human nature, He showed us that the fullness of life for us as human beings is a life of submission. If we don't develop that same posture, we're going to miss that fullness of life and ultimately remain trapped in our own desires and wills and ideas. But this posture also flows from the fact that we are now Christ's body. Right? It's one of the, 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 the most common references uh, to the church, analogies for the church. It says in Ephesians uh, that he is our head, end of Ephesians 1. He has authority over us. He is working. He is the one that we are ultimately submitting to and obeying. But let's think about how a body works for a minute. Right? The food that comes in through the mouth has a long journey before it, it gives energy to the hand. Neural signals from the brain don't just jump right to the hamstring. They have to travel through different parts of the body to get there. So if we are the body of Christ, Christ's leadership of us is going to arrive through the leadership of others. Think about this. This is how we experience the Christian life, right? The gospel is first preached to us by a person. We learn our spiritual gifts, the gifts he's giving us, by walking with other persons. And they lead us into that. If we are unwilling to receive those things from others, we are actually unwilling to receive them from Him. Only as we submit to one another are we truly submitting to His leadership in our lives. Which means that our default posture as believers is humility, is teachability, is a willingness to learn from even the person that we think is a pretty big idiot. Because God might just teach us something, might just lead us somewhere that we wouldn't have gone otherwise through their leadership. That doesn't mean everybody's right about everything, but there's often something we can glean there. Now, this is important for all of us, but even and especially for those in places of leadership. Mutual submission changes the nature of leadership. Right, last Sunday night at the belonging class, uh, someone mentioned an issue with our online registrations, something that we could do better on in the large group discussion. And the temptation, when you're in a position of leadership and you hear things like that, right, and, and there's other people in the room and you're trying to give a good impression, is to like get defensive. But there was just this deep sense of me, I'm like, they are totally right. And before I could even look over at Pastor Aaron, who was there uh, in, the, in the same meeting, and say, like, this is a good idea, he said, I'm already typing a Slack to Shauna, our church administrator, to figure out a solution. It was fixed in 12 hours. Like, that's what the church can be. It's supposed to be a place where we know that Christ can speak through anyone at any time, in any context. And when we sense the goodness of Christ speaking through that person, it doesn't matter who they are, we pay attention. Now, if that sounds a little like kumbaya. Like, it is. It never actually turns out that way in totality because it takes the Holy Spirit to change our hearts so that we desire to follow Christ. Right? And he's like the perfect God-man. So it's going to take an extra kick from the Holy Spirit to get us to follow one another. Because none of us are anywhere as good as Christ. Anywhere near as good as Christ. 
which is why we aren't just called to a posture of submission. We're called to structures of submission. Relationships where we are regularly, consistently in a default posture of submission, even as we continue to seek to submit to one another. Okay, I want to say this as clearly as I can. Every single one of us has been placed in these structures of submission. Whether we like respect them that way or think of them that way or not. The government, in all its manifestations, has authority over us because the Father has given it that authority, according to passages like Romans 13. I'm thankful to live in a governmental system where, where everyone in the government, even presidents are, subject, presidents, are subject to some other part of the government, to the judicial branch and the rule of law. This is especially true in the church. In the New Testament church, the pastors and deacons are given spiritual authority by God. The apostolic office of the New Testament comes to us as bishops, and they have spiritual authority over the pastors and deacons. Even the bishops submit to the decision of the college of bishops deciding in council together. There is no one within the church who is not submitting within one of these structures. You never like get so high that you get beyond that. Those structures, whether in the world or in the church, in and of themselves can be received as good gifts given to us by God. Now, I know that as I stand here, I'm talking to Americans, and this sounds crazy. But if freedom means not having to be in structures of submission... That is an idolatrous freedom. That is not the freedom of Christ, but a demonic counterfeit leading us away from our king. Structures of submission can be gifts to train our souls to submit to Christ, our true leader. Now, are we always led healthily within those structures? Heck no. We'll get there in a minute. But the structures themselves can be helpful in forcing us off of our own thrones, pushing back on our idolatry of self, teaching us that we aren't always right and that we aren't always in control of the situation. These can even be for the Christian spiritual disciplines that train our hearts to more fully submit to Christ and one another, set apart places so that that posture pervades the whole. They can shape our souls so that we can more freely and easily submit to one another. Okay, that's the heart behind what comes next in the text. Even if it's a bit hard for us to see with our 21st century American lenses. Paul follows the lead of lots of Greek writers, beginning uh, with Aristotle, in describing how the Roman extended family should run through these three sets of structured relationships, wife and husband, Child and parent, slave and master. Okay, today we're going to focus on the submission side of those structured relationships. Next week, we're going to dive into the leadership side. There's too much for one sermon, but I promise we're going to get there. But in each of those relationships, Paul takes the the basic Greek-Roman structure and messes with it changes it in some ways that are extremely profound. His first change is in why the submission is offered. 
Why do we offer submission in these structured relationships? Notice the key similarity in each of these commands. Uh, Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Ephesians 6.5, slaves, obey your earthly masters uh, with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. He's very careful. In each of these situations, what stands out is that the submission is offered, or the obedience, depending on the case, not ultimately to the person in authority, but to God. The submission is based not on the worth of the leader or the worth of the follower. No one's better or worse than anybody else necessarily. The submission is an offering to the Lord offered through the leader. Okay, now just remember at this point, we are all in these structures of submission. So this is ultimately for all of us. The same kind of logic applies to church leadership, governmental leaders, all those things. We're offering to God through the leader our submission. There's another set of key differences here. The the prior command to submit to one another that's before this whole section transforms how each of these structures of submission work. It doesn't destroy the structure, at least not initially, but it does create this radical equality of dignity within the structure that changes what it looks like from the way the world would have lived into it. Okay, let's start with husbands and wives in, in verse 22. In that day... There was both a more patriarchal sensibility than we have today in general. But there were also cultural pressures, particularly in Ephesus, advocating for women to wrest leadership from men, especially in the realm of religion. Now, Paul pretty much disappoints everybody with what he says here. I want everyone to notice that it never says wives must obey their husbands. It actually never says that anywhere in the New Testament as an imperative, like as a command. This is not an oppressive, obedience-demanding patriarchy. But the broader category of submission is still highlighted, this invitation for wives to be in a posture of receiving and respecting and honoring. Now, I want to note that I do think it's possible to believe in the authority of Scripture, to read the New Testament... Uh, in such a way that suggests Paul wanted people to move beyond this structure eventually so that today we can leave it behind, right? Some in this room probably think that. And you could be right. But I would caution about shortcutting the formational power and even the evangelistic power that seems to be offered to us here. The reason for this submission, according to Paul, is not that husbands are better or wiser or closer to God in their character. Can I get an amen? The reason is because there is a symbolism baked into the relationship that mirrors, in some ways, the relationship of Christ and the church. In other words, the goal of Christian marriage seems to be that a beautiful story plays out that points people to the beautiful story of salvation. 
The structure's not here because of a different dignity or even because of different giftings. The structure's here because it creates the possibility for a loving relationship where two people are not trying to both get what they want all the time, but have a loving relationship of call and response, initiation and reception that reflects in some ways the church's relationship with Christ. And we have to be careful not to stretch the analogy farther than Scripture does. Right? This doesn't mean that one person makes all the decisions. That's nowhere in the text. It doesn't mean that one person's sense of call trumps the others. For years, Sarah has supported me in my vocation in a particular way. But when we both saw God drawing her to nursing school, I knew it was my responsibility to champion her calling in a new and different way. In other words, a structure of submission does not negate the need for mutual submission. These things don't cancel each other out. So much of how this plays out actually depends on how authority is viewed and used. We're going to talk more on that again next week. Paul's words to husbands are way more radical than his words to wives here. But when following is offered within a marriage, it is offered not because one spouse deserves it. It is offered to Christ for the sake of Christ to draw ourselves and others more deeply into the story of Christ and what he's done for us. Okay, next comes children and parents. Now, unlike wives, children are called to obey in this passage. Presumably young children are in view because this goes beyond the honoring required in the Ten Commandments. Um, What would have stood out to the first readers is the moral responsibility the parents have to respect their kids' dignity and their spirits. Again, more on that next week. But Paul makes it clear that urging obedience is not just a power play on the part of the parents. Learning obedience actually leads to the child's good, not just the parent's good. Because learning to do hard things and not just giving into their own wills is crucial for our kids to live a full and abundant life. The obedience trains them towards that broader submission. Now, there's a tendency today towards trusting that whatever a child wants is what's good for them, that whatever they feel should drive the decisions of the whole family. My mom uh, taught elementary school for 30 years, and, and she said it was shocking over her tenure how trust moved from the teacher's insight to the child's desires. There's no doubt that kids are excellent observers and that parents must mutually submit to their kids and show respect for their experiences. But kids may be great observers, but they can be terrible interpreters of what they observe. And only the training of authority figures can lead them into the skills needed for an abundant life. And then finally, we come to slaves and masters. Now this one is tremendously difficult and painful. If it's not difficult and painful for you, I would suggest that Maybe you're not sufficiently connected to people across cultural boundaries. Esau Macaulay, the the black Anglican priest, professor at Wheaton, writer for the New York Times, talks in his writings about how passages like this one in the scriptures almost kept him from the faith. But there's two ditches we can fall into when we think about this passage. One ditch is assuming that slavery then was just the same and as bad as slavery was in America. It wasn't. Slavery in the first century Mediterranean world was based not on race, 
but on economics, was often limited in terms of duration, gave slaves opportunities for education, even status in some households, was sometimes even chosen by those entering it. This was not the same thing as the chattel slavery that led to the Civil War. But it also wasn't simply like our jobs today. That's the other ditch. Sometimes this passage gets applied just to employment. It's not a fair application. Slaves in that day couldn't just leave whenever they wanted. They didn't have what we would consider basic human rights. Right? This slavery was not a good thing and was not in keeping with a Christian view of human dignity. Now, based on what Paul wrote in Philemon, that a runaway slave in Christ should be treated with the same dignity that he is as the apostle, this passage probably represents Paul's attempt to make the best of a bad situation. Right? Paul was in a place societally to advocate for changing the whole social structure. In this letter, he's speaking to Christians living within an unjust system. And the way Paul talks about this obedience undercuts the very assumptions at the base of the institution of slavery. Just as what he says about marriage undercuts an oppressive patriarchy. Slaves, he says, aren't ultimately serving their master, they're ultimately serving God. Their identity is one that is equal with the masters, and God would reward them and masters equally. This was crazy stuff in that context. Aristotle complains about people who don't believe in slavery, and Paul is harsher on slavery than the people he's complaining about are. It was only a matter of time before these principles played out in Christian societies would destroy the institution of slavery. But this passage shows how Christians can be unjust structures and the truth of the gospel can serve as a seed planted at the foundation of an idolatrous tower that eventually causes it to topple over some of us may be in jobs or other oppressive situations where we need to hear some of what he says here And I think bringing up this point of, 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 of how not all uh, leadership is healthy is crucial. Because the reason we struggle with the word submission so much is that we've seen it used to oppress, right? We've seen the powerful take advantage of it to hurt people and to get others who are not empowered to help them hurt people. So much of the wrestling our culture is, is, is undergoing in gender relations and parenting philosophies and, and conversations about race and, and, and employment dynamics are all reckoning with these kinds of abuses. And the question is now an absolutely live question in our culture, whether a posture of submission is valuable at all or whether we actually need to get rid of the word, get rid of the whole concept. Friends, if there is no divine call to submission, if there is no call to follow others as a way of following Christ, we're going to lose more than we gain. We're going to lose the chance to take on the character of Christ who submitted to his Father and delighted in that submission. We're going to lose the chance to meet God through our brothers and sisters who have so much to teach us more than we're yet aware of. And we are also going to lose 
our greatest source of power and authority to protest when our leaders are using their power wrongly. Okay, hang with me here for a minute. If our submission to Christ, if our submission is always to Christ through the person, when the person fails, that does not have to destroy our trust in Christ. In fact, it can deepen our conviction that Christ and not the person is the head of the body. And if our submission is offered primarily, primarily to Christ, we can and must call on Christ to use his power to discipline those who are using it improperly. You see, then we can reject and rebel against those leaders who repeatedly refuse to lead us in the way of Christ, who repeatedly use their leadership in a way that crushes others instead of empowering them. If submitting to Christ even requires not submitting to an ungodly leadership because they're asking us or doing things to us that are, that are antithetical to that, then we can push back with a clear conscience because we know the one to whom we are ultimately submitting. If Christ is not involved in these structures, then our only recourse to the false use of power is taking that power for ourselves. The only option becomes revolution, and revolutions are often bloody. And that grasping for power will either lead to our failure and ruin, make things worse, or it will succeed, and we will be tempted to become oppressors ourselves. The abused can actually become the most vicious abusers. Knowing that Christ is in control, that Christ is the head of every authority, allows us to appeal, appeal to a judge beyond our own strength and to ask him to do justice on our behalf. This was the way of MLK, submitting to the laws of the nation even as he protested them. This has been the way of countless martyrs who submitted themselves to the flames even as their confidence in their king shamed the crowds around them. This was the submission Jesus offered on the cross. Not striking back, but standing confidently in who he was and what he had been given to do and asking the Father to vindicate him and forgive his oppressors. His Father answered him, friends, with resurrection. And in the same way, when we cry out, he will answer us. Because what we need is not the destruction of submission. We need the redemption of submission. What we need to learn is that humility is not weakness. That teachability is not a lack of confidence. That submission does not have to mean partnering with oppression, but actually can equip us to stand against it. Submission is partnering with Christ to be led by the Father into his goodness and against evil, out of a self-centered death and into a God-centered life. That is the way of Christ. And may our humble Savior lead us in that way. Let's pray.
Father, as we read of these things and speak of these things and, and hear of these things, we know there's so much pain and grief and history. But we also know that there is hope and transformation and healing that you long to give us in this space. May we submit ourselves to you as our king, our good king, so that we might learn how to walk out this way, to walk out this way of humility, so that we might become more like you and know your goodness and know your glory. We long for that, and we trust you to lead us to it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.